Hello and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a show about the green economy and how it's playing out in Canada. We bring you a new episode every two weeks that promises to go beyond the jargon and behind the scenes to explore the intersection of the environment and the economy. Current affairs, politics, business, technology, the latest research, it's all fair game and we serve it up here in 25 minutes or less. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, overhaul in Canada's auto sector. A pair of bombshell announcements mean that Canada is on its way to becoming a major electric vehicle maker. That's great news, but how does an entire industry go through that kind of transition? I speak with Charlotte Yates and Jerry Diaz to find out. Then, the Indigenous economy. With the confrontation over Mi'kmaq fishing rights as a backdrop, I speak with the President and CEO of the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business, Tabitha Bull, about the barriers faced by Indigenous businesses in the green economy. On top of that, we'll get a 60-second summary of a new international report, and we'll get a rundown from my colleague Mike Moffat about what else is happening in the clean economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's go. Auto manufacturing. It's one of Canada's biggest manufacturing sectors, one of our biggest exporters, and one of our biggest employers. But the world's biggest markets say they don't want what we're selling anymore. Big car buying countries like Germany, France, India, China, and 10 U.S. states, among others, are phasing out internal combustion engine vehicles over the next 10 to 20 years. They simply cause too much pollution, including 10% of global climate emissions. Instead, there's a major transition happening to zero-emission cars. That has led some to wonder if Canada's auto sector can keep up. Two years ago, General Motors sent chills through the auto sector when it announced it would permanently close its assembly plant in Oshawa, Ontario. But now, three weeks ago, Ford announced it would invest big to start assembling electric vehicles at its Ontario plant, and that was followed by a similar announcement by Fiat Chrysler, for its Windsor plant. So, the question is, can Canada carve out a space in the global market for zero-emission vehicles? And, if so, what will it take? To start us off, I've invited Charlotte Yates. Charlotte is the President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Guelph, founder and director of the Automotive Policy Research Centre, and in 2019 she co-authored a definitive report on the future of Canada's auto industry. Thanks for joining, Charlotte. Good morning, nice to see you. Charlotte, your 2019 report starts off by describing an industry in decline, a decline in production, in exports, in investment. It was not a rosy picture. How much has changed in the 18 months since you wrote that report? So much. So much has changed. So in terms of the policy environment, the last 18 months have seen uh, a really volatile uh, policy environment with regards to the U.S. Now, the reason why that's so significant for, the United, for Canada is the bulk of our uh, automotive production is exported and sold in the United States. So given that it's our major market, uh, any disruption to the trade relationship between the U.S. and Canada, uh, which, of course, the renegotiation of um, 
the old NAFTA, mm-hmm. the uh, kind of uh, going back and forth in terms of uh, uh, the president's trade disputes with Canada, all of that has created a very uh, uncertain environment, I believe, for the automotive industry. Finally, I mean, and linked to that, um, you also have a global shift in terms of markets. And I think this is important because in Europe, in many parts of Asia, there is a real concern uh, that emissions from uh, mechanically powered vehicles uh, are are contributing to pollution, and there is a need, and in fact, a public policy priority around uh, getting more cars on the road in those markets that are electric, hybrid, and more efficient. So, in that sense, that's a big shift. When you take those combined, it means there are both opportunities and risks, I would argue, for the Canadian auto industry. And your report covers a number of these challenges uh, also that are facing the Canadian auto sector. Um, But one of them, of course, is is a transition to zero emission vehicles worldwide. Uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance predicts that the internal combustion engine vehicle has already passed peak sales and and will be overtaken in sales maybe as little as 15 years. How does Canada's auto sector face up against that challenge? There are two elements of the industry that's important to understand in order to contextualize this answer. One is we, are, we have no domestic producer uh, OEM in Canada, original equipment manufacturer. We, we rely completely on multinational companies. Mm-hmm. So, and the production of vehicle is a major driver of our auto parts sector. If we lost, for example, I mean, when we did lose GM, as you remember, there were a lot of reports of real catastrophe as a result of that loss of GM's production because it has knock-on effects throughout the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And Canada has a very robust and innovative auto parts supply chain. Maybe I can just steal some numbers uh, or cite some numbers from your report. Uh, Ten auto assembly plants in Ontario in 2018 uh, with five auto manufacturers supported by 700 auto parts manufacturing plants. So just to, to yeah. add some numbers to, to the point you're making. How much momentum do the Ford and Fiat Chrysler announcements uh, produce, do you think, for investments throughout the sector? Will we see more announcements uh, like that? One of the things about automotive industry, uh, particularly assembly plants, when you invest massively uh, in complete, in this case, a very significant retooling and reorganization of that plant. This is an investment not for five or 10 years. This is an investment for 20 to 40 years. Okay. So this means that the most recent in, uh, announcements by Ford and by Chrysler are a significant uh, uh, kind of stake in the ground for Canada in the production of electric vehicles you do have a knock-on effect on the supply chain. If you start to get an adjustment in the supply chain, then in fact that supply chain becomes an attractive uh, force for other automakers because they say, ah, we've already got the established supply chain. We can piggyback on that. So that would encourage others to potentially invest. Charlotte, thanks so much for helping us make sense of this. It's my great pleasure. That was Charlotte Yates, President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Guelph and co-author of the 2019 report, The Future of the Canadian Auto Industry. Well, for my next guest, it's how Canada's auto sector can keep up with the changes and how Canada's auto workers can stay ahead of them. 
Jerry Diaz is the national president of Unifor, the union representing about 40,000 of Canada's auto workers. He was a big part of reaching these latest agreements with Ford and Fiat Chrysler. He joins me now by phone. Thanks, Jerry. Well, it's always my pleasure. How are you? How are you today? <laughs> Great. Thank you. Jerry, there are about 500,000 direct and indirect jobs in Canada's auto sector today. What does that number look like to you in 10 to 20 years? Well, you know, this is no longer just a question of stabilizing and maintaining the existing footprint or, or frankly, just, you know, a mindset of holding on to what we've got. Look, what, what just unfolded with Ford and Fiat Chrysler was the message uh, that what we're here to expand. Uh, we, we're here to play. We're here to play hard. It's a big deal. So do I see growth in this industry? The answer is yes. Um, many didn't see it that way. Um, so far, about $300 billion have been awarded globally on uh, battery electric vehicles. And not one nickel was awarded to Canada, and mm-hmm. that's changed significantly in the last three weeks with about $3.5 billion worth. Now, it has been you know, a couple tough decades, but you do see Canada being able to kind of reclaim a big role in the global auto, uh, the auto supply chain. Oh, 20 years ago, we were number four in the world in manufacturing vehicles. We used to build over 3 million a year. Um, last year, it was about 1.8 million. And obviously, with COVID, it's going to be worse um, in 2020. So that's a significant drop. Uh, we went from number four. Right now, we're sitting at about number 12. Um, so we have lost our global strength. Um, but I think that people are starting to wake up and go, hey, hold on here. I mean, this whole strategy of crossing our fingers and praying uh, that, you know, the, the global OEMs are just going to choose Canada um, without the government's can roll. I think they finally woke up. Um, and I think that's why you're seeing both federal and provincial governments for the first time having in place a quasi-auto strategy about investing. Yeah, you've you've been a proponent for a long time, Jerry, of a kind of cross-government strategy for the auto sector. Do you see that that cooperation continuing? I mean, is is this is this strategy going to continue, and are we going to see more announcements like these in in Canada's auto sector in the future? Well, I would expect so uh, because uh, the governments have finally woken up and believe that they can actually win. You know, I don't know what it is. We have this inferiority complex as a nation that somehow we're quite comfortable just being a branch plot economy for everyone. And once you start to win and taste victory and hit the odd home run, you start to get comfortable and confident. You know, we're a nation that has it all if you're talking about best. We have lithium, cobalt, aluminum, nickel. We got it all. Yet we're quite comfortable just pulling the stuff out of the ground, giving them to somebody else in manufacturing, buying back a finished product. So all of a sudden we're having this common sense conversation about, hey, hold on here. Why don't we use our strengths as a nation to benefit working Canadians? What an outrageous concept. But anyway, the bottom line is that's what's unfolding. And uh, and it's long overdue. Jerry, what does this look like for the workers? Is there is there training or reskilling that needs to happen? So the, the monies that we bargained are straight investment in product. Now, in our conversations with Ford Motor Company, when we did the $1.8 billion investment for Oakville, we had all of these conversations about the, the different skill sets, the training that's required, um, the timetable. 
when do we bring people in? When do we start designing programs um, that will be required for the transformation? So Ford knows, and we know, and the conversations are, as the plant goes down for the complete retooling, you know, at what point in time do we bring our members back to work to start the training? So we're having these conversations like years out. So will we be ready? The answer is yes. Jerry, really appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the show. Not a problem. You have a great day. Take care. So Canada's auto sector, as Jerry Diaz said, it hit a home run, but not completely home free yet. There are three other major automakers with several other assembly plants and thousands more jobs on the line in the coming years, though it sounds like Canada has gotten an important foot in the door. Now, this segment focused purely on the kinds of cars that most of us drive, what the industry calls light-duty or medium-duty vehicles. There's also an exciting story to be told in Canada about heavy-duty vehicles. Lion Electric in Saint-Jérôme, Quebec, builds electric school buses for Canadian and U.S. markets. Winnipeg's new flyer is already exporting its electric transit buses around the world. And other Canadian initiatives are advancing zero-emission freight trucks, waste collection trucks, and more. If you're interested in learning more or anything else you hear about on this show, we've curated some additional materials for you on our website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. That's a clip from a dispute playing out right now in Nova Scotia around the fishing rights of a certain Mi'kmaq First Nations community. For my next guest, it's a reminder of the challenges that Indigenous businesses and communities are up against as they work to get a piece of the economy. Now, there's a lot of Indigenous participation in Canada's resource sector in particular. Fishing, forestry, mining, oil and gas, energy... And here, Indigenous knowledge and approaches can help bring about more sustainable and environmentally sound methods. But there's a lot more that can be done to harness that knowledge and to unleash the Indigenous economy. To tell us more about that, I'm welcoming Tabitha Bull. Tabitha is Anishinaabe and a proud member of Nipissing First Nation near North Bay, Ontario. She's also the President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, an organization that works to grow the Indigenous economy across Canada. Tabitha, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Tabitha, I mean, it's hard not to start with the confrontation that's been happening in Nova Scotia these past two weeks where a Mi'kmaq First Nation community is facing violent opposition at times from non-Indigenous lobster trappers over access to the lobster fishery. As an advocate for Indigenous business in general, what's been running through your mind as, as you watch that situation unfold? It's definitely disappointing to see, um, particularly from the perspective of that Indigenous people across Canada have been excluded from uh, the economy in Canada for many years. Uh, it was actually not until 2014 that a section of the Indian Act was repealed that required that Indigenous people who um, raised crop uh, raised crops or or cattle had to ask for a permit to be able to sell that um, those goods off of reserve. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was a, an intentional um, exclusion of Indigenous people from the economy and. Um, 
I think it's it's really important that Indigenous people have an opportunity to enter back into the economy, particularly when, um, as Indigenous people, sustainability is something that's at the root of everything that we do. So, um, you know, the claims that, that they will have an impact on the lobster um, is definitely something that we need to really be educating on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of looking more broadly, there's a lot of Indigenous participation in the resource sector across Canada, whether it's fisheries or forestry or mining, uh, oil and gas and energy. Um, is this is this a reflection of the challenges that, that all Indigenous communities and, and businesses are up against? Uh, I think we see a lot of progress across the country. Um, and over the last, you know, 10 or so years. But um, there's still a long way to go. So if we do look at mining, for example, the Mining Association of Canada is a major uh, employer of Indigenous people. I think their latest um, facts and figures uh, from 2017 indicated that the sector provided over 16,000 jobs to uh, Indigenous community members, and they have 455 impact benefit agreements with Indigenous communities. Um, So we are seeing a progress there. And what we need to see more of is, initially, a lot of those jobs in the mining industry were um, janitorial or catering or construction services, so work that required uh, little formal training um, and had a real emphasis on physical labor. Um, That's kind of the low-hanging fruit, you know, the initial step. Same with some of the impact benefit agreements. And we need to get to a point where those jobs are in more senior-level positions that there's more opportunity for those employees to be able to stay with the company, you know, and if they wish when, when the mine closes and that company moves on somewhere else for them to continue their employment there. Um, and then also we need to ensure that impact benefit agreements are moving just from a result of consultation to an equity partnership um, or a partnership in which the community is going to benefit uh, economically as well. Given that there's a lot of employment and a lot of uh, opportunity in Canada's resource sector for Indigenous communities, how how would you describe the the relationship there between Indigenous economic interests and the environment? Definitely unique to every individual and every community and the and the specific project, of course. Um, you know what we've we always are looking for and and promoting at CCAB is that projects the projects that do continue are projects that communities are in support of. And there is a real opportunity there as well for businesses and, and resource and sectors to learn from Indigenous community, to learn about sustainability um, practices, to learn from the elders about the traditional knowledge and the migration patterns and, you know, how the land needs to be reclaimed and taken care of. You know, even within CCAB's membership, there are a, a number of Indigenous businesses that are specifically dedicated to helping industry reduce environmental impact. Um, private environmental consulting companies. Uh, one example is Can North, uh, who's owned by a business arm, the Lac La Rage Indian Band. They're one of the largest environmental service providers in Western Canada. So they work with companies in mining, oil, gas, utilities, um, but they really maximize Indigenous community involvement in projects, and including integrating traditional knowledge and engaging local people in environmental programs. Tabitha, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much for having me. That's Tabitha Bull, President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business.
Now it's time for something we do every show. It's called the 60 Second Report. It's where we invite the author of a new and important report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, we're profiling a new report from the United Nations Environment Program's Green Recovery Working Paper Series. It was written by Edward Barbier, University Distinguished Professor at Colorado State University. Ed, I'm turning it over to you. During the 2008-9 Great Recession, I was asked by the UN Environment Program to put together their Global Green New Deal strategy. Ten years later, UNEP asked me to revisit these lessons and the resulting report, Building a Greener Recovery, Lessons from the Great Recession, showcases potential new policy responses to the pandemic. Among the key findings, policies for a sustained economic recovery amount to much more than just short-term fiscal stimulus. Green structural transformation will require long-term commitments, five to 10 years, of public spending and pricing reforms. The package of reforms will be different for major economies, such as the Group of 20, as opposed to low- and middle-income countries, reflecting their different structural conditions and needs. The package of green and inclusive reforms must be fiscally sustainable. Countries are facing limited fiscal space and debt constraints. Pricing and market-based incentives are essential both to foster green investments and innovations and to provide revenues for the increase in public spending. My UN report provides many specific policy examples for both G20 and developing economies of how to build such an inclusive green and sustainable recovery from this economically devastating pandemic. Nailed it. Now, the intersection of the environment and the economy is a big intersection, and there is inevitably a whole lot happening every week that we simply can't cover in depth. So, I call on my colleague, Mike Moffat. He's the senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute to share five other things that are on his radar. Mike, over to you. What are the five other things happening in the clean economy this week? Well, here are the five things that I'm uh, watching this week. Uh, Number one, Swedish retail giant IKEA announced that they will buy back used pieces of furniture in 27 countries for resale, recycling, or donation to community projects as a way to keep products from ending up in landfills. Number two, green finance continues to pick up steam as Canadian bank CIBC has announced its inaugural green bond, a 500 million U.S. dollar five-year bond to help finance new and existing green projects, assets, and businesses that help mitigate the risks and effects of climate change. Number three, Canada's Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association has released their designs for Project Aero, a concept electric vehicle that uses entirely made in Canada parts, which highlights to automotive assemblers that all the ingredients needed to assemble EVs can be found right here in Canada. Number four, solar power has become the cheapest electricity in history according to the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook 2020. The report finds that solar is 20 to 50% cheaper than the IEA had estimated last year, and that new solar projects are significantly cheaper than new coal-fired power plants, and in the same range as the operating cost of existing coal plants in China and India. And number five, Ontario's government has released a new proposal that would dramatically change how recycling is handled. If enacted, it would transfer responsibility for dealing with waste to producers, a concept known as extended producer responsibility. 
This would ensure that producers take on the full financial and operational responsibility for the end-of-life management of what they sell to Ontarians. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five other things I'm watching this week. That's it for today's show. Remember, you can listen to all the shows, that's two of them right now, on the Smart Prosperity website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. You can also listen on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you stream your podcasts. Have you got feedback, ideas? I want to hear from you. Go to the website for my email address and Twitter handle. Again, that's podcast.smartprosperity.ca. The next episode is out November 11th. I hope you'll tune in again. Until then.